When Edward Ironside was murdered in 1016, Canute the Dane seized the crown of Wessex. The following year, conscious of the threat posed to his rule by Edmund's small sons, Edmund and Edward Aetheling, Canute banished them to Sweden with a letter of death. The Swedish king, however, spared their lives and the continental wanderings of the Anglo-Saxon princes began. Their uncertain fate greatly exercised the minds of contemporary English chroniclers. Forty years later, the ageing, childless Edward the Confessor learned that his nephew Edward was living in Hungary. He invited him to return home, casting him in a crucial role in the struggle to avert a Norman takeover. But 48 hours after his triumphant homecoming, he was dead, and the events that were to lead to the Norman conquest of 1066 were set in motion. King Canute of the Waves and Edward the Confessor are household names in Britain, two firm landmarks on the road to 1066. The story of the two Aethelings whose fate curiously linked together the two kings has, however, fallen through the net of national consciousness. Aethelred cut a sorry figure. He behaved that winter like a man under a spell, as if he had decided that there was nothing he could do to prevent the prophecies of Canute from coming true. Eventually, he took to his sick bed at Cosham, near Portsmouth, leaving the fight against Canute's host to his son Edmund. Edmund showed unexpected resolution in prosecuting the war against the invaders, and his valour soon won him the epithet of Ironside. His desire to beat Canute at his own game and free England from the invaders, not through the paying of Danegill but through military victory, is clearly reflected in the life story of his famous brother, Edward the Confessor. Edward Ironside was the son of the daughter of Count Torin, the third son of King Ethelred, eldest of the three. He said, By my faith, noble father, from us departs. No portion of our enemies, our friends and our people they slay. The country they burn and destroy, strange and unnatural. Their sovereign, fierce and cruel, whose name is Canute, spares no people so as not to take their lives. Much grief I have and much saddens me, both his disorder and his pride. By your counsel and assistance, I go to crush his cunning. So did he, for afterwards in war, as far as the frontiers of his land, he drove them. He became a worthy adversary of Canute, who soon learnt to respect the sword of the English prince. He gave hope to his countrymen and restored their pride. Before long, people were wondering whether Edmund Ironside was the man of bronze, of Merlin's prophecy, destined to recover the country from the aliens. The irresistible desire of the people to see the prophecy come true made them look to London, whose gates were to be guarded for long years by the bronze saviour of the ancient oracle. A number of events, some fortuitous, others predictable, indeed put London in the centre of the struggle for supremacy between Canute and Edmund Ironside in 1016. But with hindsight, not foresight, it is clear that the tribulations of the island race were just beginning in earnest and not ending, as prophesied by Merlin. Canute immediately moved against London. His plan is reliably recounted by the Encomias. The king ordered the city of London, the capital of the country, to be besieged because the chief men and part of Edmund's army had fled to it and also a very great number of common people, for it is a most populous place, and because infantry and cavalry could not accomplish this, for the city is surrounded on all sides by a river 
which is in a sense equal to the sea. He caused it to be shut in with towering ships and held it in a strong circumvallation. Canute's determined efforts after the takeover of London to eliminate all actual and potential claimants to the throne of England bode ill for Elgith and her tiny children, young Edmund, nearly one-year-old, and Edward, a newborn babe. In fact, the strange remark in Gaiman's history that Edmund was given a royal funeral, but his queen did not know it, can only be taken as a hint that she and her children were already being held prisoner at the beginning of December 1016, or that she was then confirmed with Edward. The manner in which Canute rid himself of Ethelred's sons must have filled Elgith with fear for the lives of her children. The new king wrongfully banished the relations and friends of King Ethelred from the country, or had them treacherously put to death, wrote Edward the Confessor's biographer. Malmesbury too reported that Edmund's brothers were driven into exile by Adric and the command of Canute. The fatal consequences of the inheritance clause of the Olney Peace Accord were brought home to the defenceless Eldgith. Her children were taken away from her and there was no one who would protect the lives of Edmund Ironside's sons, the heirs of the Anglo-Saxon crown. Gaimer, whose work was based on the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, oral tradition and other contemporary sources, now lost, reported that the prime mover against the two Aethlings was none other than Edric, the turncoat duke. Before ever Elgith knew it, or any man could tell her, to Canute they were brought directly. This did Edric, the traitor, thus he thought to increase his honour. The lives of Edmund and Edward Aetheling hung in the balance. Canute summoned the nobles who had witnessed the pact between himself and Edward at Olney, and they were charged with the accord's supervision. But they did not speak up for the Aethelings. If there was some clause favouring Edmund's male heirs in the agreement, there was no one in the country who would stand up to demand its enforcement. John Stowe, the Elizabethan antiquarian who appears to have been interested in the issue, gave an incisive analysis of Canute's action and the Aethelings' predicament in his encyclopedic book, General Chronicle of England. Canute the Dane, taking an occasion because in the covenant that was concluded concerning the dividing of the realm, no assurance was made for the children of Edmund. He challenged all England to himself, alone by the law that they call it, of growing too, which was a most easy thing for him to do, because there was no man that durst erect himself as patron to defend the children's right and title, and by this subtitle and crafty interpretation of the covenant, the Dane got the monarchy of England. Canute began his rule with a wave of executions and massacres. The elimination of all those who could in any way threaten or challenge his hold on England was intended to cow the rest of the population into supine submission. Amid the death throes of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom, the cries of the innocents were hardly noticed. After centuries of Norse depredations, the English seemed to have run out of tears. Yet even in the midst of all the fear and apathy in the new year of 1017, the murder of Edwig, Edmund Ironside's brother, and a popular youth aroused a sense of revulsion and impotent anger. But Canute brushed these tremulous protests aside and continued to solidate his victory in his own fashion, accentuating the pathetic helplessness of the vanquished with Ethelred's sons, Alfred and Edward, in exile, and Edwin dead. Canute had to resolve the threat posed by the existence of Edmund Ironside's children before he could settle down to enjoy in peace the fruits of his conquest. 
Although he had shown ruthless determination in eliminating everyone who could come between the Crown of England and himself for the first time, he hesitated. Kaimar's account of the events of 1017 provides a different timetable. Although we must have known the generally accepted version, currently in the 12th century that the Aethelings were sent directly to Sweden with a letter of death. He insists that they were first taken to Denmark by a Danish nobleman called Walgar. He was to bring them up there in style, fit for the children of Canute's sworn brother. Reassuringly, the move to Denmark is also reported by Alderic Vitalis, the well-informed 12th century monk of Evrul. Unhappily, however, he got the name of the King of Denmark, to whom allegedly the Aethelings were sent wrong. Although Canute had a brother called Harold, who actually ruled Denmark, he never had a brother called Swain, as reported by Alderic. The mere fact that the monk had heard about the first leg of the Aethelings exiled to Denmark is of course more important than the confusion over who actually ruled Denmark at the time. They entrusted the two lads to him, who were king's sons and noble. He received them to nourish them well, to bring them up and keep them. He thought indeed that if he lived, he would bring them up in great honour. What shall I say, he departed and went to Denmark. With the children he went one was called Edgar, the other's name was Aethelred. This was the younger lad. Well were they kept and well nourished. Edmund and Edward spent their most impressionable and formative years under Yaroslav's tutelage and reached manhood in his capital. His ideas of statecraft, religion, justice, honour and duty shaped the Aetheling's intellectual horizon and it would have been surprising if the sheer weight of Yaroslav's personality had not radically influenced their outlook. Without undue surmise, it can be conjectured that the two fatherless boys grew up more Kievan Varangians than Englishmen in their tastes and manners at Yaroslav's court. But the outward trappings and attributes of Kievan life that dominated the Aethelings' waking hours did not eclipse the notions of duty towards their distant country instilled in them by Wolga. There is persuasive evidence that Yaroslav, while initiating his wards into the Byzantine complexities of the art of government, did his best to nurture in them his sense of duty towards England. Russia was still in the grip of winter when, at the beginning of 1046, Andrew and Levent led their Kievan mercenary army across the snowbound Carpathians and entered Hungary through the Uzhok Pass. Spring had come very early that year into the Hungarian plains and the country was basking in an unseasonably warm sunshine as the Varangian swordsmen, Novgorod spearmen and Kievan axemen advanced along lush river meadows into the country's interior. The seers and diviners accompanying the Norse Varangians reported exceptionally favourable omens, and the foreign soldiery, cheered by the fine weather and wildly enthusiastic welcome by the population, made good speed along the river Tisa, the gods it seemed were favouring the Hungarian prince's enterprise. Edmund and Edward, Aetheling, witnessing the triumphal entry of their exiled friends into Hungary, must have felt elated at being part of such a daring venture, although their joining forces with Andrew and Levent must have been seen as much due to the frustration of their position in Kiev as a sincere desire to help friends in their hour of need. The Year of Grace 1048 found Edmund and Edward happily settled in Hungary. They were not the wards of the pious King Stephen, nor the recipients of charity at the court of King Solomon. 
as claimed by the Anglo-Norman chroniclers, but they were actually living in Hungary, even if they had arrived there under differential circumstances and at a much later date than jumbled accounts of the British chroniclers would have us believe. They were living not as refugees, but as comrades in arms of King Andrew the Catholic, favoured and cherished for, for services rendered to the throne, and this difference in their condition opens up fresh sources of material evidence in the reconstruction of their years of continental exile. The children remained there, Hungary. Three years later, they were grown up. The youngest was 15 years old, but the eldest was the taller. He had passed 19 years. Edgar was his name. He was well favoured. The king's daughter took him for her lover, and he loved her. This was known. Before a whole year had passed, the lady became pregnant. What shall I say? It went so far that the matter could not be concealed. The king heard it. It was related to him, but he was little wroth. He even said he would agree to a marriage if he would take her. He would give her to him. The youth kissed the king's foot, and he summoned his folk. The next day was the meeting. The king gave his daughter to Edgar. Before his people, he married her and the king gave all to know that Edgar should be his heir after his days, as he had no son. He made him his heir because of his eldest daughter, whom he took. Therefore have I told you, I would have you know, marvel not at it. From this Edgar and his wife issued the precious gem, Margaret they called her. King Malcolm made her his queen. She had an elder brother, Edgar the Aetheling, was he named. The English sent for the children, for their father was no longer alive. The two children were the right heirs to those who acknowledged them as true. After the first seven years of his reign, a period redolent of great symbolic significance in medieval Britain, Edward had his reputation as a pious king firmly established. His otherworldliness was seen as a sign of heavenly favour, and his ceaseless prayers an indication of his intimate communion with the Lord's host. Signs of the strength of his faith and heavenly recognition of it abounded. His dreams were accepted as a prophetic revelations and were interpreted as oracles, and his reputation for healing the sick and the blind went a long way to deepen the belief in his miraculous powers, regardless of his firm disavowal of any such powers. A legend was in the making. King Edward the Confessor, bowed with age and having no children himself, while he saw Godwin's sons growing in power, sent to the king of the Huns to send him over Edward, the son of his brother Edmund Ironside and his family, for that either he was to succeed to the kingdom of England by hereditary right or his sons would do so. Because of his own, the confessor's childlessness ought to be made good by the help of his kindred. After having lived the life of an outcast of England for 38 years, Edward's exile was suddenly drawing to an end. The dream of a triumphant homecoming that had made the tribulations of a lifetime in exile bearable, was coming true. In its hour of need, England was reaching out for its long-forgotten son. Edward the Exile was once again Edward the Aetheling. The future King of England and the wrongs and wounding neglects of the past were wiped away. It seemed all too good to be true. Edward's recall from Hungary was an act of desperation, a gamble born out of the recognition that desperate situations need desperate remedies. The shadow of the superior Norman military might and culture was occluding England and members of the Witten recalled in horror from the threatening tableau of chain. In the search for measures to maintain the Anglo-Saxon ways, 
the recall of Edward must have seemed the simplest and most effective plan in 1054, but no one could predict then with any certainty whether Edward could fulfil the hopes pinned on him or what would be the reaction of the other contestants of power to an interloper on the tense English political scene. In the middle of August 1057, Edward Aetheling set foot on English soil. The bitterness of a lifetime of banishment must have dissolved amid the emotional euphoria of homecoming. It was a triumphant return made the more memorable by the ecstatic welcome accorded by the English people to Edmund Ironside's son and his family. The cheers for the Aetheling and the royal acclaim were quite justified, for he was recalled as everyone knew and Florence of Worcester recorded to be declared heir to the throne of England. Yet there must have been something bizarre on that first encounter between England and the Aetheling. Edward set eyes for the first time on the countryside and the people of a land completely unknown to him, but which he had been taught to call his homeland. Yet he was of England, even if exile in East Europe shaped him and made him aware, and the very Anglo-Saxon name of his infant son Edgar demonstrated this affinity with his native land. However, the cords that connected a prince to his people were never knotted for Edward the Exile. And of course, there were the ghosts of the past that could not be wished away. Amid quayside jubilation, Edward could be forgiven for wondering whether the Lord's uttering honeyed words of welcome were perhaps tainted by collaboration, or worse, with his father's murder. His return to England was greeted with a poem by the Worcester writer of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. In his 1057 entry, he recorded Edward's homecoming, but added a curious and, in its consequences, ominous incident. Here comes Edward Aetheling to Engerland. He was King Edward's brother's son, Edmund King, who Ironside was called for his valour. Nor wist we to for which cause that was done, that he could not his kinsman Edward King behold. There were sinister forces, which were determined to prevent a meeting between the king and his intended heir, can be seen from the carefully phrased account of another contemporary analyst, the Abingdon writer of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle making his 1057 entry with a weary eye on these powerful people. He nevertheless felt impelled to remark, we do not know for whatever reason that was done that he, Edward the Exile, was not allowed to see his relation, Edward the King. The trustworthy testimony of these two accounts shows without stating the obvious that certain influential people in the king's retinue were prepared to go to any length to interpose themselves between the confessor and his nephew and deny the latter admittance to the royal presence. Such a meeting would have resulted in the king's formal approval of Edward Aetheling's succession and this these mighty men were clearly not prepared to allow to pass. And since the succession of the last descendant of the Anglo-Saxon royal house had a great popular support, more drastic action was required, and very quickly at that, if the interests of certain other contenders were not to be harmed irrevocably. Within days, certainly before an entry unusually dated 31st August in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Edward the Exile was dead. The chroniclers of the time, like the Peterborough writer of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Abbot Ingolf of Croydon and Florence, duly recalled the unexpected demise of the Aetheling but significantly they make no mention of illness. They confine themselves to stating that he had died shortly after his arrival in London, but his totally unexpected death clearly shook the kingdom of Wessex. The popular outburst of grief was spontaneous and heartfelt. 
joy over his arrival turned into mourning, laughter into tears. One chronicler summed up the national mood. The laments for the son of the legendary Edmund Ironside were not wholly sentimental. They reflected the fear of the silent majority of an uncertain future, the dread of a war of succession and foreign domination. The Worcester poet who had welcomed Edward in verse rewrote or supplemented his 1057 entry in the light of the events of 1066. Alas, that was a rueful occurrence and harmful for all this nation that he so prematurely his life did end. After that, he to Angoland came for the mishap of this wretched nation. On the 5th of January 1066, as the king lay dying, he was surrounded by Earl Harold, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, the Queen and Robert Fitzwimard, a friend of the Confessor and of Norman Extraction. The strongly pro-Godwin author of the Vita Edwardi Regis, who knew the king personally, and dedicated his work to his queen, Godwin's daughter gives a very detailed account of the deathbed scene and the monarch's last word. As he felt his death approaching, the king gave his hand to Harold and asked him to protect the queen and the country and gave him instructions for his funeral. I commend this woman all the kingdoms to your protection. Serve and honour her with faithful obedience as your lady and sister, which she is, and do not deprive her as long as she lives of any honour she has received from me. I also commend to you those men who have left their native country for love of me and served me faithfully. Take an oath of fealty from them if they wish and protect and retain them or send them with your safe conduct across the channel to their own homes with all they have acquired in my service. It is said that when the king was near his last hour Harold and a few others were with him. Harold first leaned over the king and then said, I take you all to witness that the king has now given me the kingdom and all the realm of England. And then the king was taken dead out of bed. The year of grace, 1066, began badly for the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. With their gentle and beloved king dead and Harold on the throne, the people looked to the months ahead with trepidation. The omens were the worst in living memory, and according to those who understood the language of heavenly signs, they presaged ceaseless woes, wholesale calamities and terrible upheavals. King Harold's supporters who mocked the faint-hearted were silenced when a terrifying comet with a burning tail appeared above the country in the spring and remained stationary for a fortnight. It was observed throughout Europe and noted even in China. An English poet was inspired by the apparition to encapsulate the event in a rhyming couplet. In the year 1006 and 60 more, a comet stretches streamed o'er England's shore. The monastic writer of the Rhymes Chronicle felt similarly inclined and recorded the heavenly warning in classic hexameters. Sexagenus erat sextus melissimus annus, cum peruent anglae stella monstrante cometa. The life story of Edmund and Edward the Exile, retrieved from silt of history, leaves on with a vague sense of regret tinged with unease. It followed, it would seem, a predetermined course along which the real escape hatches had all been boarded up, and sham ones boldly displayed in spite of one's secret hopes of seeing them overcome their destiny, their struggle to master their fate was clearly doomed from the outset. Here concludes this episode, The Lost King of England.